Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is episode number 44 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab, episode 44. 44. How about that, huh? That's incredible. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Take it away. Well, okay, so um, this individual that we have joining us today, uh, his name is Jeff Wall. Um, I have um, been, I've had a professional relationship with him. Um, with his uh, car dealership, or not car dealership, his um, uh, car aftermarket. Repair, no, his uh, uh, repair shop, repair auto shop. repair shop. Um, and just because it's convenient, I've um, you were friends with Jimbo Wheat, and um, so I used to hang out at Jimbo's shop all the time, and he always spoke very highly of you. So when he shut down his shop, um, uh, you know, my my I, I just started bringing things to to you and. Um, every time that I've had any sort of interaction with you or Tire Depot, uh, it's been a positive experience. So, um, and then I found out that you were also in recovery, and I was like, "Oh boy, I tell you what, this guy is something else. He's got everything going on for him right now, and he's a good person. He's not a piece of crap." Um, so when um, you, you're you you post all the time on Facebook, and I love your posts about the yoga and and bettering yourself. So it was a natural fit for me to try to get you on the podcast, um, and and we are so incredibly grateful for you for taking the time uh, to come and and hang out with us. We are super grateful. Um, so what I would love to do um, is talk about just briefly, maybe five ten minutes um, about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Just so we can kind of, so the listeners and all of us can all be on the same page, uh, and then we will we'll hop into a, a little bit more in depth conversation and and uh, talk about what exactly makes Jeff up, uh, makes Jeff the person that that you are. Um, but let's let's get just a quick. We don't want to harbor necessarily on the 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 gore and all the you know the nasty details. I mean, we're you're in recovery. That's pretty good indicator that the life you had before sobriety was pretty tragic and not healthy. So we're, right. we're all on the same page about that, but it, it would help for the listener and viewer to be able to connect with you a little bit more and perhaps be, have this conversation more rewarding for them if they could uh, connect and, and, and know a little bit about your past uh, before we hop into the, to the conversation. Sure. I'm happy to do that. <clears throat> so I'm 60 years old. I'm, I'm matter of fact, I'm turning 61 this year. I started drinking at age 15 with my high school buddies, and uh, I will tell you from the very moment I started, from the first time I drank alcohol, <laughs> I drank to excess. I've, I've never known any other way, and like I said, in, alcohol was introduced into my life at, at, at age 15, and <clears throat> at any rate, uh, so I, I had, I've had a, a, a um, excessive relationship with alcohol, or I did have from the very beginning. Um, I stopped drinking at age 27. So I, and I often 
oftentimes reflect and say that in 12 years from age 15 to age 27, I drank a lifetime's worth. I really did. And, uh, so, so that's 34 years, right? I have 34 years of sobriety. That's correct. And, um, I, so, so just a, I guess a brief rundown. Alcohol definitely caused a lot of problems in my life. Um, I, started to get in trouble uh, I'm gonna say legal trouble with alcohol as a as a teenager it started to cause some problems but I recall that the that the sheriff or the police or whoever I encountered uh, prior to age 18 were probably uh, as gentle as they should be with uh, with juvenile a juvenile but I will sure. tell you after 18 they don't they just don't play around anymore right, right, it right. becomes very serious and then definitely resulted in some some arrests and and whatnot and and by age 27 it had, it had just gotten serious enough that they were done playing with me and it was and it kind of came to an ultimatum of of uh, of you know this has to stop or you're or you're going to you're going to jail and so I went to a recovery program and I, and I, I, I will say I somewhat voluntarily did that and, and the, the judge frankly did order me to do it, but honestly it was my, my, my lawyers, um, urging to allow instead of just sentence me to jail, which would really would have, would have obviously cost me my, my job, quite possibly my career and my, my, perhaps even my marriage. I'd only been married a year and a half at that time. So it was really a big, it was really a big to do when I got arrested. I was a, a printing plant manager at the time I had 75 employees it was a big it was quite a quite frankly a big scandal and uh, but my lawyer urged the judge before sentencing me to to allow me to go to an outpatient a state-run outpatient treatment program uh, two nights a week three hours a night for six months so if you do the math on that it's 300 it's 300 some hours so it was outpatient and I was still working but I, but I spent more than 300 hours in this program and I will tell you first off going into the program I had become very tired I mean I definitely had an addictive relationship with alcohol I always drank to excess you know early on early on that just meant getting drunk a little bit later that meant sometimes going as far as as blackouts and not remembering what happened the next day so it was a it was a problem that was getting progressively worse and causing more and more problems in my life but by the time I entered that program I fully embraced the idea that I really want to stop drinking it's it's caused enough problems i'm done but i don't know if i know how to and so i i say that all that to say i really embraced the program i didn't go in i didn't go in kicking and screaming and fighting i went in and embraced it and said i need to stop drinking one of the counts- did you, how did you hear about did you hear about the program I take it this was a twelve-step program that you're was, referring to. It was a twelve-step program. Okay. It was a state state agency. Okay, uh, so you were primed from this outpatient rehab about kind of a, about what AA is all about, or yes, okay. without question, they, they they it's a yeah it was a it was an on ramp to AA. They dovetailed or worked directly with and recommended AA programs. In fact, oftentimes specifically um, uh, ordered patients sometimes to, uh, to attend those. I don't, re- I don't recall the exact circumstance, but no, no without question, it, uh, just a well-strap program and definitely, definitely um, involved. Was that involved here in Mississippi? It was. It was. And is, that, f- is that facility still operating? It, it is. It is. And I, you know, I don't know that the counselors are still there, but I, gotta, I just got to have to give them credit. They really 
really cared about the people that came in there. And I will tell you, not everybody came out of there successful. I watched, you know, as I said, more than 300 hours over six months, I watched a lot of people fail out of that program. The carnage in their lives, in their life, in their household, in their lives, the, the lives of these people that I saw was really heartbreaking. Um, it just it drove home how damaging drugs and alcohol are. To, to did people. you so, only drink, or were you? Did you have? I did experiment with recreational drugs, but alcohol, without question, was my drug of choice. There's no no doubt about that. I don't understand you people, but I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I sense that y'all are out there. Well, when I I will tell you another story to jump to jump to the subject because you just hit on something funny. When I was a teenager, I I don't know exactly how old, but maybe 17 or 18 years old, I was with a, with one of my best friends, and we were having this conversation. He just was expounding on how much he love marijuana oh I just love the way it makes me feel and I said you know what I really don't it makes me nervous but boy the you, first give me time, some, you give me some old granddad whiskey now the and first we were naming our I drugs sm- of choice is what we were doing we were right, sitting there right, expounding right. on our drugs of choice the first time I smoked pot I thought why does anybody drink yeah I'm the same way I loved it I loved it 100%. well the the it, the the, the, the it it just made me uninhibited is what it did. It, the alcohol I'm talking about. Yeah. It, the, in a way that marijuana did not. It actually made me a little bit nervous where alcohol is like, you know, I could say what I thought and do what I wanted. And, and I love that feeling. And the problem is I did. And that's what kept getting me in trouble. So right. back to this treatment program to not to not go to labor on too long. But I just want to give these guys credit for, for credit where credit's due. One of the counselors, when I first got there, of course, they challenged me. They know these people are coming in from court, and you know, all they want to do is get out from underneath a, a sentence, right? The judge made it clear. I'm going to send you to this program. We're going to have a conversation when you get back, and we're going to decide if you're going to jail or not. So he made it pretty clear. Like, I had my stakes were fairly high. Real, the stakes were real high. But when I got to the program, as I said, I embraced it, and one of the counselors asked me, so do you want to quit drinking, or do you just want to do what get you have to do off. to get out of trouble? Yeah. And I said, no, I really want to quit drinking. He said, well, prove it. I said, I, 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 tell me what I need to do because I want to quit drinking, but I'm not sure I know how to. He said, okay, here's what you do. Start. He said, do you believe in God? And I said, I do. He said, okay, pray to, pray to your God to remove your desire to drink and then do the work in this program. I said, I'll do that. Sounds and like I, you were blessed with the gift of desperation at that point. That's right. I was. And, and, and you know, in AA, they called me a high-bottom drunk because I didn't lose everything I had. I was just threatened with the loss of everything I had. That doesn't that, matter. That, that was enough. Matter. But they called me a high-bottom drunk anyways. You who, know, oh, Jeff, old Jeff didn't lose everything. I still I got to keep my job. I didn't. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, for six months, I didn't know. I didn't know what the judge was going to do. He made it clear that, that I was, you know, that I was looking at, at, a, at a sentence that would, again, would have cost me my job. And, again, Probably my career. Um, but nonetheless, I did the work in the program. But here's here's the cool thing. I did pray to God to remove my desire to drink, and I started working the program. And, 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 and again, the, that, the program was really life-changing. It was the, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. It truly was. And I, and I was aware of that while I was in there. But the coolest thing was just a few weeks, two to I don't know how many weeks, but a couple few weeks into the program, I realized – I really don't want to drink anymore. Like my desire to drink is gone. Right. And I used to drink compulsively. I mean, right. really drink compulsively. And it's 34 years later and there hasn't been one single time in 34 years that I've had a desire to drink. Like I pray to God to remove my desire to drink. It was removed. It's still removed. How about that? It's pretty Some incredible. people call that a miracle. 
I would absolutely. I yeah. call it a miracle. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. I don't flaunt that or anything like that. But in thirty-four years, there has not been one single occasion. And believe me, I've had a you know I've had hardships and the kind of things that drive people back to drinking to try and cover up their pain. You know, the loss of my dad and quite a number of things. Not one of them has made me think. You know, I need to go drink because that might make me feel better. I know very well. <laughs> I know very well it will only make things worse. And let's I, I, only, yeah. I feel it's important to to clarify because we have a lot of folks that that listen and watch uh, this program that are in early sobriety. So when when we say we don't think about uh, drugs and alcohol. The, the the possibility of the thought crossing your mind oh oh I should drink that that's going to happen that's a possibility that it happens even with years and years of sobriety the difference is today we have enough information to be able to completely disregard that thought as something that's just fleeting it's not something we obsess about it's not something that we harp on it's just oh yeah I used to do that uh, good thing I know exactly what that's going to lead to if I can if I you know, entertain that thought whatsoever and then move on. Right. But that, that technically is, you know, it, it technically is a thought about drinking and using, but today we don't focus on that. We don't and can play the tape through. We can play the tape through and we don't harp. So if you're in early sobriety or long-term sobriety or wherever you're at, and you do have a thought about drinking or using, as long as you don't focus on that and, and harp on that and, and engage with that thought, that it's it's completely normal. We are we are alcoholics and addicts, and we're going to think about drugs and alcohol from time to time. But today, we have the information to be able to not harp on that and 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 dive into that. So, if you have those thoughts, don't beat up on yourself. Don't think, oh, well, I'm not doing the program right because I'm thinking about drinking. No, it's very possible to have those. It's very possible to have using dreams. It's very possible to to think about that. But today, we have the information to not go down that road, and we've played the tape through. So. It sounds like you went through something kind of like an early version of drug court, really. I mean, it. Uh, I think so. And I, I don't know that it, there wasn't anything established like that. I think my lawyer uh, paid the guy a lot of money, but I think he really had my best interest in heart. And the judge, uh, I, he, you know, he didn't come across to me as a compassionate guy, believe me. Believe me, he was ready to drop the hammer on me. On the other hand, he did right by me. He gave me the opportunity to go. Okay, go take six months and prove that you're that you're serious about this. And I and I came back and showed judges him that I was, like a comeback story. I, I I came back and showed him that I that I meant what I said. That I'm I'm done. I'm really I'm really done. I don't want to go through this again. So, and he had mercy on me. And and you know so what what's so cool? I I have now thirty four years of sobriety, and I've had an opportunity for. Anyway, I have a lot of history now that I can look back on and see the difference in my life from from drinking to sober and all of the the I'm going to use a term here that comes that comes from my yoga training, but uh, but karma that's developed out of that. So one of the things I learned in this yoga teacher training that I just did is a lot deeper meaning. I know everybody knows the word karma. It's a Sanskrit word that goes back about 3000 years. And it I always thought of karma as meaning, you know, that that thing that will bite you on the ass if you do something this esoteric, uh, uh, universal, wispy thing. Reckoning. Reckoning that'll come bite you on the ass when you do something bad. It's a lot deeper than that. It's Karma is cause and effect. Karma is, karma is the response to your 
actions. So my actions in my drinking days had effects that were inescapable. They, they caused me lots and lots of problems. I got sober and changed the path that changed the course of my life. And in 34 years, the, the positive effects of karma, because there's positive just like there's negative. There's, there's actions, excuse me, there's a response that, that comes from your actions that cause an effect. And it's been, it's just been remarkable what's happened in 34 years, how much positive karma has, has, uh, has invaded my life. Well, you know, the Bible talks often about reaping what you sow. Exact same concept. Uh, you know, if you sow discord, I mean, the the opposite must then be true. If you sow well-being and I mean, implicit in that idea is the fact that you will come to answer for this at a later date. I mean, sowing means to plant. and Precisely. It is literally the same concept. Yeah, the biblical concept is you reap what you sow. In modern ter- in modern parlance, what goes around comes right. around. Yeah. So karma is a single word that describes that thing. And I'm a true believer now, especially I look back over 45 years of my life, uh, from age 15 when I started drinking and then 27 when I stopped and then 34 years since then. It's just remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah. So what I love more than anything in this world is positivity. And it sounds as though you have been investing positive things into this universe for 34 years. So I really want to talk about some of those positive things. One of the things that I love more than anything uh, is the fact that you are a pilot and you use that pilot's license to do some pretty incredible things. So first thing I want to ask is when did you get your pilot's license? How did you get involved in that? And then how did you get involved with the, the amazing work that you do uh, with pilots for pause and then uh, angel flight source, angel flight source. How did, how did that come about? Tell us a little bit about that. So I'm, I'm an air force brat. I grew up on military bases around the world. I, I grew up around airplanes. My dad was not a pilot, but it, we did live on air force bases. He was it ran entertainment facilities. And so I was, I was around planes and fascinated all my life. I, I will tell you, I met a lot of air force pilots and these are some of the best pilots in the world. And I, and it did not dawn on me that that was a realistic path for me, even though I had a great interest in it. But when I was in my forties, so this is 14 years ago, when I was in my forties, uh, just the, the bug to, to get up to work on a pilot's license just bit me. Uh, it was not a great time in our household financially, but I went to Cynthia and, and said, my wife and said, this is something I really want to do. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for years, but it, that it occurs to me that I, that if I'm going to do this, I need to do this because I will, for people who don't know, if you earn a pilot's license, so long as you don't do something stupid and get it revoked, your pilot's license is forever. But what's not forever is your medical certificate. So and you do have to have a medical ter- certificate to fly. Sooner or later, something is going to happen to to cause you to not be legal to fly anymore. It could be a heart event, or or it could be a, a, a you know a dementia or a mental uh, degradation or kidney stones or cancer or something. But sooner or later, you can't fly anymore. Even if you have a pilot's license, sooner or later, you're not legal to fly because you don't have a, you don't have a medical. And so I told her, this is something I, that's been in the back of my mind. I want to start working on this. And if and I, this is not something I can wait to do until I retire, like, you know, wait till 65 and then I'll get a license and fly. It doesn't work that way. I, you, at some point, you just can't fly anymore and you need the experience. And so she, uh, she agreed. And again, it wasn't a great time in our household. It was kind of you know, that was around the recession of 08, if you recall. So it was, it was a, it was a 
little bit of a scary time with our business and our household. But nonetheless, I kind of dove in and, and started flying then. And as a as somebody who wasn't going to school, now there's a path for people who are going to basically go to college to learn to fly and kind of take the professional route. But there's also another path that is kind of self-study where you work with an instructor and do complete a bunch of milestones. Did you up, go here in Madison? Up, I did. I did. Uh, Madison Flyers. And then up to the point to where you, t- you take a written exam, an FAA proctored written exam, and then you do an oral examination with an FAA examiner and then you go fly that's called a check ride the oral exam and the and the actual flight demonstration of your skills is called a check ride one of the most terrifying things you could ever possibly do uh, it, seriously it is whew, it's very very scary but nonetheless so long story short 14 years ago I start flying I'm working toward that I, I get my I, I do succeed in earning my pilot's license the 60 hours? 60 it, it, so initially? minimum minimum 40 hours of flying okay. and 40 hours of, of ground school plus the, the study for the exam. But I will tell you, nobody's ready in 40 hours. Most most people, it's more like 75 hours of flying and plus the ground school. I mean, you could, depends. So depends on on how how much you dive in with both feet. But right. but yeah. So I get my, iron, I'm, I'm, I'm flying with my instructor and training and training and training and training and training and I, I do my check ride and I earn my pilot's license. And they call that, by the way, a license, the FAA calls it a license to learn. Because, you know, even though you've had to study and do all that stuff, you still are just, you, you don't hardly know crap when you first get your license. You have a lot of learning to do. That license to learn and the, and the pilot sarcastically, you know, morbidly call it in the pilot community license to kill yourself. Meaning <laughs> it's legal. You can go take the plane and kill yourself once you get your license. But uh, so from there, I start. I jump straight in to, to working on an instrument rating, and so that's another process of flying with instructor and training and studying and studying. And the instrument rating is just a, lots of math and numerical and it, it, navigation, and just it's it, it it's pretty heavy D. So I'm flying with my instructor and training and training and flying and training and training and flying and flying and training with an instructor. And I do my check ride, pass my instrument. That's probably the most, most challenging rating to get, but pass my instrument. And then I'm like, all right, what do I do now? Right, <laughs> right, so right. like literally, yeah, I've been for years, I've been studying and training, studying and training, studying and training. And now I'm done. I got my, I got my pilot's license. I got my inspiration. Like, where am I going to go? Right, right. So I'm at the store and I'm having this conversation like, oh, I'm done with the training, get past my inspiration, but you know, not sure what, right. how many vacations are hundred dollars. They call them hundred dollar hamburgers. You can jump in the plane and go to New Orleans. Not hundred. Now it's a thousand dollar hamburger, yeah, yeah. but nonetheless, how many times can you just jump in the plane and go get to Memphis or New Orleans or wherever and get lunch, you know, until that gets old and and there's a limited limited number of vacations you can take and so anyway I kind of needed a needed a reason and a place to fly to and I'm at the store having this conversation with with one of my customers and she says Jeff there is this great program called pilots and pause will you please look into it there's such a need so they organize flights for uh, rescue animals around the country and they need to go everywhere so I, the, the, so the website is pilots the letter n pause.org it's basically a big smart clearinghouse for for rescue transport so i go home and i look at this you can you can you can go to the website and register for free there's no charge for anything you don't have to be a pilot most matter of fact most of the people registered or not they're they're rescues probably one third pilots and two thirds non-pilots that are that are rescue that are registered there but there's animals moving all over the country all the time and i and you can just sign up and say hey i'll take this flight and so I, so the day after I got my 
my instrument rating, like the next day after I get my check ride, I, I decided I agreed to fly a puppy for a rescue in, in uh, Monroe, Louisiana to Columbus, Georgia. And the weather was not particularly good. Of course, that's what the instrument rating is for, is to fly in low, low visibility conditions. But because the weather was so crappy and I was a brand new pilot, I asked my instructor if he would go with me, which was a, which was a good thing to do because the weather really, really, weather really was low. So we took off. He said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll go. So we take off from Jackson. We, we fly. We're in a Cessna 182. We fly to um, Monroe, Louisiana. We pick up this little meet this this uh, rescue lady. Pick up a little puppy. And then, what's the flight time on that? Uh, an hour and hour and fifteen minutes or something like that. Hour, yeah, about an hour there. And then we go to Columbus, Georgia, and that was a good that was a good two and a half or three hour flight. And then drop the puppy off at a rescue there, and then from Columbus, Georgia, back to Madison. So I fl- going into Louisiana ceilings were low and I had to shoot an instrument approach to land there, which is what I just trained for my instrument rating for, right? So low approach, real world, real world experience, low approach in Louisiana. And we meet this, this, this lady, pick the dog up, fly to, to South Georgia, shoot an instrument approach down there because the ceilings are low, drop the dog off, fly back home. Ceilings are so low, we can't even land at Madison. We have to divert to Jackson. I've shot all the way down to minimums, which is two, 200 feet above the ground. Like my first day with my instrument wow. rating, I'm flying down all the way to minimums. I did have my instructor with me. Again, a good, good thing. But I, it, it just dawned on me, like, what great experience this was. So I did that. You do it as a volunteer. The transportation, the transportation is free. The pilot is providing those resources. You pay the pilot would pay for the for the fuel and the in the time, but it's a deductible expense. It's a charitable expense, and obviously the rescue's benefit is that they get the animal transported free. So they're you're kind of you know solving a problem. But I also recognized immediately like this was excellent training for me. That was a real world flight. I had a reason to go to some airports. So I don't have any reason to go to. I shot instrument approaches and got more experience. Well, I've built. I have 2,000 hours of flight time now. I've built all, almost all my experience doing, doing volunteer work like that. So after a, after a few hundred hours, I, I, I stepped up from animals. None of them ever complained about my landing. Right. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I never one time heard a dog complain about my landings. Uh, nah, at any rate, so I decided to, to, to see, see about flying humans. And so uh, I registered with an organization in Atlanta called Angel Flight Soars. We fly for Angel Flight Soars. We fly ambulatory medical patients. So we're not air ambulance service. You know, this is not people that are carrying IV bags or anything. It's usually going to be like a cancer patient or burn patient going that are, has multiple doctor visits they have to go to that would be a hardship for them. So a reason why they uh, medically it, it's better for them to fly that way, or just as a just as a they live in a small town and it's just a challenge to get two states away to go see a cancer doctor or burn doctor or whatever. So that's what uh, Angel Flight Source coordinates those. They do about 4,000 flights a year. I started flying missions for them, and for two or three years, I probably flew 10 or 12 missions a year for Angel Flight Source. And then I had occasion to fly to their headquarters and drop a patient off that was making a two-leg. I fly, like I flew the first leg and dropped the patient in, in, at PDK, a, a tertiary airport in Atlanta, Metro. 
and met the staff there, which is where they operate. And my buy-in for this this charity just went way up once I met the staff. Like, they are the real deal. They really care about their patients. It's a staff of nine. It's a no-frills operation. They live and die on donations, corporate and private, and nobody gets charged anything. So there's nine people coordinating 4,000 flights a year for medical people, not charging anybody anything, completely getting by on donations, and they love their pilots, and they do such a great job. I just, I mean, I'm just very, very proud to, to support that organization. So over the years, I've done about 100 missions for them, and I intend to do more. So my, it's, they're my favorite charity, angelflightsoars.org, if you want to look them up. Great organization. Yeah. And so, again, like I've built, I've built my pilot's experience on that. And also, I, I got a, I got a story. I don't want to cut you off. I got a story. No, no, no. I, no. A, I'm just, I was just yeah. going to say that um, – before we leave, text yeah. me the those email address, and I'll add them to our yeah. website. Okay, sounds good. So I got a cool story about an epiphany I had while I was flying uh, uh, one of those missions. I flew a family to Dallas, Texas, for this for this young man to have surgery, abdominal surgery. Love Field or DFW? Uh, Love Field. Yep. And so, I'm. I'm it happened to be a Friday. It was an unusual day for me to fly, and I was taking the whole family. I was flying this Bonanza, but I'm a partner partners in a A36 Beach Bonanza. That's the one that's headquartered at Madison. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, and you've probably seen on Facebook, but a lot of times I'll take Facebook friends or co-pilots or or somebody when I'm taking when I'm flying rescue animals, I call them pup wranglers. So I carry somebody with me to kind of help me manage the dogs. I almost always carry somebody with me. Well, this happened to be a flight that I didn't have room to take anybody with me because I was flying the whole family over there. They had their luggage, and it was a it was a it was a husband, a wife, and a mother, and luggage for three plus me. And I just didn't have room for or weight or room for another person to go on this trip. And so after I dropped them off in Dallas, I'm flying home by myself, deadheading. A little bit unusual. Usually I would be chatting with somebody, but I had a two hour, a little bit over two hour trip back from Dallas at night in the dark on Friday by myself and just had time to ponder. And I always come back from these missions. Angel flight missions are very cool because I come back from every single one of them with a renewed sense of appreciation, thankfulness for my health, I'm, you know, I'm flying people with very serious medical conditions to a person. They're all positive and thankful, and it's just remarkable that they can be in such a good frame of mind, every single one, every single one be in such a good frame of mind in the face of, you know, such dire medical circumstances, dire enough that five of my passengers have, have succumbed to their illnesses. I've lost five of them. Of, of the hundred. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm flying back from this one by myself. And I was, I recall I was over Longview, Texas at night and you could see the stars. I'm at 9,000 feet. I got a tailwind. I mean, it's just perfect. And, it, and, and I would just, I just was overcome with appreciation for how fortunate, just how lucky I am. You know, this wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten sober. Right. All of the good stuff in my life wouldn't happen. And, and it just kind of settled on me how lucky I am that I, that I did get sober, that I did get a pilot's license, that my wife supports me flying this. I wouldn't be able to do this if she didn't support me. All the things that had to fall in place my, from, my, from my dad and my family, and as I told you, growing up on a military basis, to my exposure to airplanes, to the, to the work that I did to pilot's license, and honestly, to have the financial wherewithal to do that, I really had to be self-employed and have my business in order to have my business I had to have the experience I had in the printing industry management printing plants before that and I kind of thought back over all the years and all the things that have happened in my life and this is kind of back to the karma that I was talking about earlier all those things put together were required me for me to get to the point where I was at in my airplane flying home 
and it just real I just realized like this is not an accident. This isn't an accident. This is actually my mission field. I'm sitting in it. It's my airplane and my pilot's license. God gave me that. And and it's I, I feel like it's my job to do something to give back to that's what I'm supposed to do. And another you know the cool thing is my wife again supports me in that. I don't if, I don't think if she didn't get it that that was my calling, that was my thing to do. I just don't think it would work. I don't think you could have a battle in your household where, you know, where your wife didn't want you flying airplanes, but you wanted to fly any, it just wouldn't work. So all the, again, all those things had to happen. And it just dawned on me that my mission feels my airplane That's, and, and my pilot's license. That's awesome. It yeah. is awesome. The, con- the uh, effects of compound interest of good deeds. Right. Karma, karma, 34 years of positive karma have, have made my, it's just made for a, a, an amazing life. I'm, I'll say I've, one thing yeah. that's remarkable about your mindset is how, you know, in the, in the calculus of cause and effect, how you trace everything back to sobriety and how easy it is for us to forget that that's really the beginning. That really is the foundation for anything we can accomplish. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. I, I just, all, all of the good things that have happened in my life, I'm convinced wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten sober. I'm just convinced. You know, it would have been. Well, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no and doubt. And, and it, this, is, this is a cool one that I don't, I don't bring up too often, but I'll bring this up. <laughs> I have done some calculations. So you realize I stopped. I, I did smoke cigarettes at the time, too. So I stopped drinking and smoking 34 years ago. And I've done a few calculations, probably very conservative on how much money I've saved. Oh, yeah. 34 years of not smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. And the conservative numbers are about a quarter million. Yeah. And I swear I think it's more than that. Oh, but yeah. I, it's airplane money. It's airplane <laughs> money. You realize I'm buying airplanes. I'm buying airplanes with the money that I didn't spend on alcohol and cigarettes. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> nice airplanes, man. Yeah, it's awesome. So, That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. All right, so we also have we also have Blizzard. Yeah, so I want to yes. talk. I want to talk a little bit about Blizzard because people love pets and people love pets that are doing incredible things. So tell us a little bit how um, you got Blizzard set up to be a therapy dog and what exactly you guys do uh, to help the the community in our area with Blizzard and and that sure. incredible pet there. Thank you. Yeah, he's he's great. So Blizzard is a white Swiss Shepherd, Berger Blanc Swiss. And he is a rescue, and I got him. Is he really? Oh yeah, he, he's big directly because of pilots and paws. So a really? friend that I flew, a friend that I flew rescue missions for, that lives outside of Nashville. We, uh, Cynthia and I had had uh, had recently lost a uh, Pomeranian that was a rescue that we got locally at Marl, and we're just kind of smarting a little bit from from losing a pet, and you know, yeah, you know it is households empty and whatnot, and. Um, I, so a, a few close people knew, I guess through Facebook, people that I knew through Facebook knew that, that we had lost a pet and it was, you know, we're considering getting another pet. And somebody reached out to me and said, Hey, I have this dog that I'm trying to rehome for a young lady in, in, um, and out in outside of, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. And it's a white Swiss shepherd. I had never this heard, dog is I, gorgeous. I had never heard of the breed white, like white Swiss. I had to look them up. White Swiss shepherd. So, they, they're an offshoot. They were kicked out of the German shepherd breed standard in the 30s because they, 
it back then didn't have DNA tests, and they declared an albino. So they almost exterminated the white coat breeds. So there is a there's now, and all, all German Shepherds you may know have a recessive white coat gene. When the breed was developed, the maternal grandfather of the original German Shepherd was a was a white herding shepherd, and so these white these white coat variants will pop up occasionally in the in the litters and the original developer that they were these were working dogs he didn't care what color they were the, the original developer was a german infantryman he didn't care what color they were but in the 30s they got kind of highfalutin and decided that these were albinos and therefore inferior and they should they should not be allowed in the breed standard well again they almost exterminated the white coats uh but enthusiasts in germany kept one branch alive, and then a breeding pair made their way to Switzerland, and a whole separate branch up from the, the Swiss branch was developed. Blizzard comes from the Swiss branch. And um, they each of those, by the way, have achieved their own breed standard now. So Berger Blanc Swiss, or White Swiss Shepherd, is its own breed. So is the White, the white German Shepherd, which the breed is officially called White Shepherd. So, any rate, w- with that in mind, we knew what the dog was, and, uh, and my friend helped put me in touch with the young lady who had to get rid of him because she she was 19 years old in nursing school, lost both of her parents, and had to move in with her aunt and uncle. So he didn't come from an abusive background, but he came from a background where he had to be given up by his original owner. And we pledged to take good care of him and, you know, make sure that he had a good life, and his his owner agreed to, to, uh, to give us the dog. So we flew to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and picked him up and brought him back down here. He was 16 months old at the time. He had... Uh, very basic obedience, like he could, he, he knew sit and sit and stay, and uh, effectively that's about all. Uh, but she had done a good job. His original owner had done a very good job of socializing him with people, and he really liked people. That breed, the breed's known for being very—they're not aggressive, you know. They're not German Shepherd like like uh, guard dogs or anything. They're farm dogs basically, and their their breed is known for having a real mild temperament. So we observed when we got him just how much he loved people and everybody and was super friendly. It just seemed like a good fit for him to be a therapy dog. I had a friend who a friend who had a therapy dog, and I reached out to her and said, "What do you think about what do you think about Blizzard as a therapy dog?" And she said, "I believe he was born for this. If you want to train him, I'll help you." What does that look like? So <clears throat> the early part of training for therapy dog work is about, all about obedience. So we, we got him registered in, a, in a, a, an intermediate obedience class, and we went. That was with uh, – we didn't drop him off. We, we, we went, like, weekly on Saturdays to intermediate obedience. He was a very fast learner at home doing tricks, and I thought when we went to intermediate obedience, like, he's going to be the best dude. This dog is so smart. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was terrible. He was easily the worst dog because he, he, had, he had been exposed to a lot of people but not a lot of dogs, and he was so distracted. Like, when there are other dogs, he, he would lose his mind. He wanted to play with the other dogs so bad. He was terrible. He was the worst student in the class. I thought, I thought he was going to be the best. He was absolutely awful. But nonetheless, we made it through intermediate immediate obedience and then we went to advanced obedience and he, you know slowly but surely he's also right. maturing he's getting better and better and he made it through advanced obedience and then at the end of that there's an add-on module uh, once they're fully under control there's just a few specific things they need to know to be to be therapy dogs like the one of the most specific things is like they have to really have a good understanding of the command leave it so when you go to a nursing home or a hospital sometimes people are trying to hand out food or pills or something like that obviously the dog cannot take that so leave it means you absolutely cannot have that and he you know he was razor sharp on that command leave it leave it means absolutely not 
leave it. I need to teach some of my kids. It's a great command. It's a great, yeah, leave it's a good one. So that's one that's important. And they also have to be able to ride, you know, ride on uh, elevators, not be scared of equipment coming down like wheelchairs and walkers and gurneys and things like that coming down. Just be aware of this. Hallway, hallways, yeah. So, and, and that sounds like it would go without saying, but I had one of the trainers say to me one time, imagine being at the dog's level in a narrow hallway with a gurney coming the opposite direction and they're, like they sometimes the dogs don't know what to do and it scares them. The cool thing is Blizzard he, he is so chilled out. Nothing nothing phases him. He's cool with everything. So at any rate, we made it through all that. You go through a testing procedure where you, a tester observer watches what you do. You, you we went to nursing homes, we went to Home Depot, you know, you interact with people and they're observing and you they have to be able to leave food and things like that. You know, it's literally food on the ground, you walk them past and they're not allowed to touch it. So once all that's done and they're certified, this organization, there's more than one, but the organization that he's certified by is a, a, a alliance of therapy dogs. They carry, they offer with their, their certified dogs, they have a $5 million um, liability insurance policy that goes with that. So, so long as we're, so long as the dog's being handled properly and you're working, we're literally insured. That's required usually to go into nursing homes and hospitals and things like that. In the case of the hospital, so we like UMMC a lot. Quite a few hurdles to get set up to go there. You know, like the handler has to, the dog certainly has to be certified, and they then they have to have their minimum health requirements through the vet. Nothing major, you know, nothing nothing really outstanding regarding that. Once all that's done and they're certified, then the handler has to do pretty much everything that the employees do, which would be fingerprints, background checks, you know, shots up to date, all that good stuff. So with that in mind, then we we got cleared to go to 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 UMMC. And started making visits there, and Blizzard very quickly became like a celebrity, like I mean, like a rock star when you go to UMMC. And I, and I was thinking when we went up there, like we're going up there to see the patients, right? And we were, we were, we would definitely go visit patients and whatnot. But the employees just go gaga for him. I mean, <laughs> they just go nuts whenever you were walking down the hall, anywhere we go, they just, they just stop and he's, he's like a white stallion. Like he is he's like, it, yeah, he's. How big is he? He's, he's he's a big boy. Yeah, about eighty pounds, seven just under eighty pounds with big white long fur. He's gorgeous. He's yeah, he's a beautiful dog. He's pretty stunning. He and was up at the store one time when I was getting up getting yeah. something done up there. Just the most chill, calm, peaceful dog. Yeah. Like and he you just, just feel good around. Oh, him. he's just like a magnet for people. They just yeah, they just so anyway, we just we got we we started going to UMMC and you could just walk down the hall and he'd just get mobbed and we just go from one group of people to the other and he just soaks it up and he's getting all this petting and loving and he just it's just great. And then we started going to uh we we literally got asked to go to the to the ICU floor. So we were we were standing in front of Oh wow. We were standing in front of the elevator. They don't even let people in there. I know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we were standing in front of the elevators ready to go up and this nurse comes running up to us. There was myself and another and she said, we saw you on the camera. We saw you on the cameras. Will you come in the ward for us? We, I mean, they literally, so we popped down to the ICU ward and their patients are all out of it, man. They're all behind glass. They're, nobody's even awake. They're all you know, in coma or whatever. These are seriously ill patients. But what we discovered was the, the staff that's there, they're lonely. They're all locked on this ward for their full shift. And there's a, you know, there may be eight or 10 or 12 of them, but that's the only people that I see for the entire shift. They're lonely. They're very lonely. So, boy, do they love it when we go visit. And 
that quickly became my very favorite place. Like we would go straight to the hospital and work all the ICU floors. There's a tower. It's all ICUs. And we'd go to every single one. Man, they put on the dog for us and welcome us in. It was the coolest thing ever until COVID shut everything down. So we, yeah, all the volunteers got basically got the boot from the hospital, so we couldn't go for two years. Blizzard totally didn't understand why, because he loved going. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, like, why can't why can we not go see all his, my friends, you know? So for two years, we didn't get to go. Last year, they started to let us back in, but they haven't fully haven't fully removed all the restrictions we're mostly limited to common areas you know lobbies and hallways and things like that which is okay but not quite as much fun as it was before they have started to let us go back to patient rooms on request so if a, if a, if a nurse or patient specifically says hey miss so-and-so in you know floor 301 or room 301 would like a visit, you know, then we'll pop down there and visit them. But it's not quite like it was. There was a, there was a time when there, there's a picture if you want to see blizzard. Yeah. There was a time when, um, yeah, there was a time we just used to have the run of the place. It was like, we could go everywhere except the operating room. Man. It was, it was pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite back like back that like back like that yet. But yeah, that's, that's blizzard. That's his story. He is uh, seven and a half years old now. He's, he slowed down a little bit. Uh, but he's still he's still hanging in there. Um, I think the life the life expectancy for a big breeds like that is maybe ten to twelve years. So he's kind of sort of an old man at this point, but uh, he still gets around pretty good. Absolutely, he loves his people. He sure does. He's a good boy. Yeah, he's a, the goodest boy. The One goodest of the goodest boy. boys. All right, so we've talked a lot about the emotional side of Jeff Wall, the the interior things. What I'd like to talk about now is a lot of people in early sobriety and even those with long-term sobriety struggle with their weight. Um, They struggle with their uh, outer uh, appearance, and um, it it appears as though that is something that you have kind of taken the reins with, and um, you've, you've gotten some serious control over. I do remember the first time that I met you, you were considerably larger than you are right now. So if you would talk to us and we're, we're doing good on time. We're at 45 minutes. We've got about 15, 20 minutes left. Okay. So if you would talk to us a little bit about what you have done with yourself uh, on the physical side of your recovery. Um, what, uh, I know that you, you post a lot about yoga. We'd love to hear a little bit about that, but what exactly, and how have you lost weight? And just tell us a little bit about the physical side of Jeff Wall. So I recall when I was early in sobriety, I remember him telling me when I was in treatment, like, be careful. Cause when you quit drinking, you're probably going to notice an increase in, uh, sugar cravings. I remember, I remember the older guys, it, which I guess I'm one of them now, but I remember the older guys saying that to, you know, yeah. be careful because you might, you might find yourself craving sugar. Well, boy, did I. So like, and, and they also, and I also recall hearing, you know, once you, once you quit alcohol or once you tackle this addiction, you may well have other addictions, other areas of addiction pop up in your life. And again, that's kind of been a recurring theme throughout my whole life. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah, yeah. With different Except <laughs> now it's, they're positive things. Right, right. That's right. That's right. I've, I've reversed them a little bit, but I, I've still have a, I definitely still have an addictive, ten, uh, addictive personality. And I have to be careful with what I, with what I uh, get into because I tend to overdo, you know, uh, that's just my nature. But so I did have a love hate relationship with food and 
and and especially sugary sugary foods like this the kind of stuff that I didn't used to eat a whole lot of before I stopped drinking desserts I'm talking about and things like that definitely became a little uh, uh, more prevalent in my diet and that resulted in me gaining a lot of weight and so I, I've kind of had a roller coaster uh, uh, weight I've, I've gone on diets and and exercise binges and all that over the years and finally at age 57 I was I was not at my the highest weight, but I weighed about 242 pounds. I'm six feet tall, so that is morbidly obese. Uh, yeah, that's a BMI of over 30 for sure, well over 30. And I, I went to a wellness doctor, and I remember him saying, like, Jeff, you know, and diabetes runs bad in my dad's side of the family. There, it, 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 it's, a, it's definitely a problem. So alcoholism for that matter too, but and cancer. Um, so at any rate, at age 57, my doctor says, Jeff, you're like on the, you're exhibiting signs, pre-diabetic signs. You're on the express train to diabetes. You really have to do something about this. And, um, and so I had a friend who had, had, I'd watched lose a lot of weight. She actually, I say a friend, a Facebook friend, but it's somebody who I knew professionally, a CPA that, that worked with my business, who was extremely rotund, like five foot two. And I don't know what her weight was, but she was so fat, she was almost round. And she lost 95 pounds in 2019. From the beginning to the end of 2019, she lost, lost a, a, you know, almost 100 pounds. Wearing size four jeans, which she, I, I mean, she was big. So obviously what she did, worked and I reached out to her because I when I re, I, I kind of reached a breaking point or discussed with myself and just decided I, I need to do something about this it's time to address it um, you know at some point I, I believe in some point at some point in everyone's life they're going to have to pay more attention to their health you know I, I, there's a tendency to flaunt that a little bit when when we're younger but when you get old it older it becomes more serious and if you don't address your health it, it you know eventually it'll kill you you'll die young and per, and the and the, your last years your your nominal 10 years of life they they call it medically your last 10 years of life will not necessarily be pleasant if you're in, if you're not in good health right so <clears throat> anyway, I reached out to her but before I did that I, I kind of recruited my my wife I really wanted if we were going to do something I wanted us to do it together and, and kind of ask her if she would if she would consider um listening to what my friend had to say about her her nutrition plan she did and we adopted it ultimately uh, we adopted a plan so we changed the the way we eat basically in a a nutshell it's it's definitely reduced sugar but it's basically smaller portions eaten more often we eat six smaller portions per day and it's it's primarily uh, uh, protein and healthy fats with less sugar and uh, and it was very effective. Like I lost uh, I lost sixty six pounds in seventeen weeks, like four pounds a week. I lost four pounds a week for sixteen weeks straight, without exercise. It was all all about nutrition. Like I, I tried for most of my life, I tried to exercise, outrun the fork they call it. You know, do right. I did triathlons and raced bikes and and ran half marathons and did all kind of stuff. So so I could eat extra, and it still doesn't work. You have to address the nutrition. When I finally did, the weight just flew off me. And guess what? Now I'm feeling pretty dang good. I've got my nutrition. I won't say I snapped my fingers, but like I was finally getting on top of nutrition, and you you just create so much energy and such a healthy aura that now I, that, it, that so anyway, exercise follows that. I'm feeling really good, and uh, and I I got into yoga, and had been exposed to it about uh, twenty years earlier. 
and learned just a little bit, not very much, but I had a friend who was a yoga teacher who had allowed me to take some of her classes and I learned from her. So I was, I was a spin instructor at the time and I, and I actually worked for her, but I took some classes, learned a little bit. Her name is Barbara Nobles and she's still local here. Um, so I learned a little bit from Barbara and it kind of, I went back to yoga when I was younger, when I was in my forties, it maybe was a little bit too slow and didn't suit me. That doesn't mean to say it was easy. It, it can, it's as hard as you want to make it. On the other hand, I wasn't particularly good at it, but I still liked being in her classes. There was something very, very positive about, about it. When I went back to it this time at age 57 or 58, it really seemed to suit me better at this age in my life. It's really cool. So it's, it's mostly body weight. When I say, when I say yoga, it's that yoga is kind of all encompassing, but we're talking about asanas, basically the, 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 the physical practice of yoga, uh, asanas, I should say. And, uh, so with that in mind, I've gotten, I have gotten pretty deep, deep, well, deep enough to do a yoga teacher training because I don't do anything halfway. Right. I got <laughs> true alcoholic. Passion. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so I started doing yoga three and a half years ago. <laughs> 1500 classes later I'm certified as a yoga instructor like what the hell right 1500 who the hell does that but we do Swami yeah. right Swami Wall does yeah, that yeah, yes, does exactly it. right so yeah again don't do anything halfway but it's been it's been a life-changing experience it's been pretty cool so that's on top of the nutrition and it really does have me feeling good I mean good enough to hop in a tub of Freaking ice water. How about that? You took it like a boss, man. I'll say that. You laid it, laid the hammer down, man. All the way down. I can't believe you guys talked me into that. That's crazy. Knowing you, you've already ordered a a home kit now. Right, exactly. (laughs) We'll check back in with him in two weeks. Two weeks. He's got got four cold plunges. Yeah. They've all they've recruited everyone that they know, and they yeah. have a, a thirty person, three phase electricians showing up. I wire it all. Yeah, <laughs> I promise. And, and well done on that. I mean, you, you you did you handled it like a boss. For those of you that uh, aren't aware, um, uh, we invited Jeff to uh, hop in the cold plunge before we started the podcast this morning, um, because you do get that two point five time dopamine release. Uh, we may start. We may start a whole nother podcast just on the cold cold plunge and we'll we'll see we'll see uh, but uh, jeff handled it like a champ and just sat right in and halfway and through in. put his arms in yeah absolutely so just killed it just killed it killed it this morning so well done on that and thank you congratulations on doing something that's difficult because it's not easy it is absolutely not it's easy. not easy but if you do it for 11 to 12 minutes per week all in the of, aggregate it, all of a sudden your things will start to change fundamentally within you, inside your mind. And I'm very interested in that. Yeah. That's it, that's the kind of stuff I'm focused on now. You know, yeah. that's where I'm at in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's he's guaranteed to have a plunge and a sauna. <laughs> I already have the sauna. Red, 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 I already yeah. have the sauna. Red light therapy. <laughs> there's, yeah. Yeah. there's some kind of magic cycle you can do yeah. between the hot and the cold and right. the hot and the yeah. cold. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's, it's incredible. That's not lost on me. Yeah. Yeah. If you've already got the sauna, I mean, Next step is cold. You can't afford not to get one. You cannot afford not to get one. And we're super excited to to see where you wind up with that. But um, we we are running a little bit out of time. So we're about out of time. Drew, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Well, I want to hit you with my two favorite questions. Okay, sure. What do you do poorly in your recovery? Oh, poorly. Mm -hmm. Well... I, I guess, I guess 
limiting limiting what I get myself into and overdue maybe is it like I touched on. I guess I've learned over the years, but I just have to be I have to be careful what I, I have to be careful what I get because you go hard, right? <laughs> right. I have to be careful what I step into. So I'll tell you I'll tell you a, a quick story. My brother uh, a, a few Christmases ago, we we're up down on the coast. My my family was down there. My brother <clears throat> says to me one Christmas, "Hey, uh, you want to go? Uh, you want to go duck hunting with us next?" so-and-so and I was like no he said <laughs> he said man come on you might like it I was like that's the problem I, I don't, yeah I, no I am absolutely not going duck hunting because I might like it I do not need another hobby I fly airplanes and exactly, I do not exactly. need to get into duck hunting exactly. so that's yeah I have to be careful like that and sometimes I'm not I'm pretty sure we're gonna read an article yeah. about your delivery of a puppy to some aircraft carrier somewhere oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right what do you do well in your recovery your recovery practice. Okay, so I am very good about getting into routines. What I've learned, and this is this is this is probably where I'm harnessing my addictive tendencies for good, because I, I like this nutrition plan really suited me. Like we what we we started coaching because we had so much success. We've coached a lot of other people, hundreds. We've coached hundreds of people doing this, and it breaks my heart whenever someone doesn't succeed at this. It's because this program works every single time if you do it. If you follow it, it's doctor developed and, and the, it's, it's laid out, but some people simply find a reason why they can't. They just find a reason why. No, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. And all these things break the plan. For me, all I needed was a routine. Like, just tell me what to do. Give what, me the formula. Give me the formula. What do I eat? When do I eat it? I can do that. And I'm good at that. Like, I get into routines real quickly. It's exactly how well, I got how so did deep you into find, yoga. And it, how so, were you able to switch to the formula and thereby suppress like the urge to like, I do great from 6am to 8pm after 8pm it's on, <laughs> it's on with what I'm going to eat. Yeah. Fig Newton, fig Newtons. I mean, you, <laughs> nothing safe. So and it's like, I have a different brain at 8pm. Right. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I know I'm not even being funny. No, I like I have, I feel like if I don't get full, I can't fall asleep. The same way, yeah. So, yeah, so there, some of that's habits now. You know, uh, so one of the things, our program is good about teaching fundamentals of, you know, not just weight loss, but but, but one of the things that comes to mind, what you're talking about there, that, that it, you have to learn kind of the difference between physical hunger and mental hunger. So mental hunger is a craving. So if you if you have a habit of eating fig newtons for you before you go to bed or snacking on something before you go to bed, it is unlikely, particularly if you've had a, had a good dinner, it is unlikely that you're actually physically hungry. What you are is craving yeah, something. I, yeah. So how, do, how, do I, how do I combat that? How so do I overcome that? Make up your mind that you're not going to succumb to that. But here's the deal. One one way I started being able to just a few weeks into the program, I started being able to differentiate between physical hunger and, and mental hunger. And here's and here's how you tell. Physical hunger is is builds up slowly and it doesn't go away. It's your body craving calories, and you're by the way, you're not going to win that battle. You you shouldn't you don't need to win that battle. If your body's craving calories, it's craving calories. That doesn't mean and here's and here's something else interesting. You can take in 150 calories, 100 calories, 150 calories. If your body's craving calories, you can satisfy it with 150 calories or a thousand calorie cheeseburger. And your body does not care the difference. It's asking for calories. You can give it 
150 healthy, 1,000 unhealthy, and both of those will Some grilled quench, chicken will, or a five guys. Right. So both of those will quench that. That's physical hunger. And, again, that's taking care of what your body needs, and, and you're not going to win the battle. Mental hunger, on the other hand, you can actually ignore it. If you can ignore through it, you can drink a glass of water and not eat anything, and it'll actually go away. You weren't really hungry. It was your brain saying, hey, I'm used to having something right now. So if there's a time, like if, if just like you said, is snacking before you go to bed, or if there's a time when you sit down to watch a, a movie in the evening and you're used to having some popcorn or whatever snack you sit down and eat, your, your brain gets used to. So if you sit down to watch a movie and you don't have that snack, like, dang, I'm hungry. No, actually, you're not. It's your brain saying, I'm supposed to have a snack right now. So the best way to combat that is a glass of water? Yeah, drink something. Drink something and ignore it, and it'll go away 15 minutes later. If it's physical hunger, it won't go away. You'll still be hungry in 15 minutes. I eat so much, I'm never physically hungry. Right, right. <laughs> and that's that's another key that our plan kind of plays out. Like we're we're we live in an obesogenic society. Like there's we're a wash in food and not healthy food either. There's so dang much food available to us that we have to start deciding what's healthy, what's not, when am I gonna eat, when am I gonna not. And one of the things I learned, and here's here's a big mistake I was making. Like I would run out the door, you know, I, I run a business, we're we're crazy busy. Lunch is one of our busiest times. So I would skip breakfast in the morning this is my old style i would i would slam coffee in the morning not eat anything for breakfast run into work get super busy and then about 11 30 go ah, i'm a little bit hungry maybe about time for lunch and then we have a rush at work and wham we just get slammed and i look up and it's 1 30 i haven't eaten anything all day i'm starving it's 1 30 and I didn't bring anything to work with me. Guess what my options are? Pins. All bad. They're yeah. <laughs> all fast food. I have no good options. I, right. All I can do is run out, grab some crap, eat too many calories, get back to work. That's what I was doing. And then go home, eat too big of a dinner. To compensate fall, because fall I didn't eat. Fall didn't asleep, eat, yeah. fall asleep, get up and do it again the next day. Right. Guess that that is a recipe for just packing pounds on you. And that's exactly what it did. I had a 40-inch waist. And it's my waist is 32 now. And and so at any rate, I don't ever walk out the door in the morning without knowing what I'm going to eat. I either carry my lunch with me or of, of late my lunches are the uh, fit chef things that, you know, that's right down the street from me, which are worth their healthy meals anywhere between 250 and 400 calories. They're not very expensive. That's what my typical lunch is. I have snacks that go in between, but I walk out the door knowing exactly what I'm going to eat all day long. And if I, if I leave my house and I don't know what I'm going to eat when I walk out the door, I made my very first mistake. I never used to do that. Now I never don't do that. I know what I'm going to eat all day long with the exception of dinner. When I get home, my entire day's worth of food is either in my hands, in my vehicle at work, or I'm picking it up at fit chef. That's what I eat. I just don't eat. I don't eat fast food. I don't eat unhealthy. I'm not saying I don't snack. And here's the cool thing, Drew. I don't spend any time being hungry. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm hungry, I eat. That's that's it. When I'm when I'm not hungry, I don't eat. When I'm hungry, I eat. And I don't stuff myself. I don't gorge myself like I used to. I used to overeat. I was I'm famous at overeating. I've been overeating my whole life. I learned real young when I was when I was a kid that if I ate real fast, I could actually pack in more food. Than I needed before my body sent the signal that I was full. Why I felt the need to do that, I have no idea. I don't know if they're on the I, same I, way. I don't know that there was any trauma or whatever, but I just remember as a real kid, like if I eat fast enough, I can eat more. Why? I don't even know why I wanted to do that, but that's part of that addictive lifestyle. I mean, it's it, it pervades my whole life. Food, alcohol, work, hobbies, you name it. 
I got to be careful. <laughs> I got to be gonna, careful. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Uh, drink a glass of water and wait yeah. 15 wait minutes. Wait 15, yeah. yeah. I'm going to yeah. set a timer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because Lord knows, man, those goldfish, man, they just disappear at night. I don't know what's going on mm. with that, but big old cup just disappeared. But then we're back at the gym the next morning. Well, I'm going to do that tonight. Well, I did it tonight. So we're going to give Every that time. A, Yeah, we're going to yeah. give that a shot. So, Good. Jeff. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You, man. Um, this has been incredible. It has. Uh, and, and I hope that uh, someone has been helped out there. Um, but uh, Or inspired. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, And also, just uh, forward me any information that you want on our resources page yeah. okay. uh, that's surrounding you, whether it be Optiva, uh, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, right. and, and I'll be more than happy to put that on the recovery resources uh, page on uh, recoverylabllc.com. So, uh, we are all out of time. We're thank you out. so much, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we thank will, you. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye.